Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for yet another Lord's Day, for the blessing to be under your word, your truth, by the guidance of your spirit in us, through the word that you have provided for us. And we beg you, O Lord, that you would speak today. Speak through this preacher, this frail man. You are strong, O God. You do not faint, you do not grow weary. And so we pray that you would, by your spirit, speak powerfully through your word, and that we who are listening would receive it also by that same power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. We live in a world that is rampant with idolatry. The way that Romans 1 pictures this for us, and Romans 1 does not use the word idolatry, and yet it very neatly spells out for us the definition of it, is that in creation, in God's beautiful creation, men can look at it and they can see God's invisible attributes. They can see his power, his beauty, his goodness. But what they don't do is, I want to know that God. What they do instead because of the conflict they have with the work of the law that's written on their heart that tells them that they are sinners, is they exchange what they know about God from creation for a lie. And they start worshiping created things rather than the creator. We see this all over the world today with idolatry and oftentimes it actually is this literal type of idolatry including statues and worshiping before these statues. And you might say, what does this have to do with me? I don't have a statue in my house. I don't bow down to anyone but God. But the reality is, this idolatry problem also stems to you. Because idolatry isn't just bowing down to a literal false god in front of a literal statue. In Matthew, Jesus talks about money and God. And he says, you cannot serve both God and money, implying that people will try to serve God and money. And then in Colossians, as well as its sister passage in Ephesians, it refers to covetousness as idolatry. And it refers to in, in Ephesians or, or Colossians, I'm mixing up which one's which, it refers to the, uh, the, the one who covets as an idolater. So even just wanting something out of envy, the Bible calls idolatry. And really what we could conclude is that anytime you sin, it's idolatry. Anytime that you choose your own fleshly desires over God, you are placing someone or something over God. We could say you're placing yourself over God. And so idolatry is a rampant problem, not only among the other religions of this world, idolatry is an issue that we must confront today. And what this passage is gonna show us, the main point of our sermon, is that trusting in idols is foolish and trusting in God is wise. And the hope is that listening to this word today would encourage us to start putting to death our idols recognizing the folly of bowing down to them instead of our good and gracious king, okay? So we're gonna break down this sermon into two parts. Five reasons why trusting in idols is foolish and five reasons why trusting in God is wise, okay? Don't be intimidated by this outline. It'll, be, it'll go quick, okay? So, so five reasons why trusting in idols is foolish. Number one, idols can't help you. Idols can't help you, okay? Turn to Isaiah 44, if you're not there already, and look at verse nine. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. So all who fashion idols, those who make idols, and in this case, it is literally talking about real physical idols, they are nothing. That is a strong word of condemnation, very similar to what we see 
in Isaiah 41 that says, an abomination is he who chooses idols. So if you make idols, if you choose idols, in God's eyes, you are nothing and you are an abomination. And it says of those who make idols, the things they delight in do not profit. This is, this is part of the, the foolishness of their creating idols. Those idols don't do anything for them. They, if they start at zero, they do not go up in any way, but in fact, it's a liability for them. It puts them in the negative. So the idols that they're making do not profit them in any way, even if they imagine that they do. Verse nine continues, their witnesses neither see nor know. Witnesses is probably talking about those who worship the idols uh, in the same way that we see in verse eight, right before it, talking to Israel, you are my witnesses, okay? So the witnesses of the idols are those who are bowing down to these idols. And it says that they neither see nor know. They have no spiritual insight. They have no actual knowledge. And the result of that in their worship of idols is that they would be put to shame. When their folly of idolatry is exposed, they'll be put to shame before God. Now, as we read this verse, it should give us both, if you're a Christian today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it should give you both fear, but also gratitude. Fear because if all who fashion idols are nothing, and all who choose idols are nothing, and we fashion idols in our heart, and we choose idols over God, we are nothing. We are abominations, and we thus deserve God's wrath because of our sin. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, that's the state that you're in right now, and you are in a very precarious situation because tomorrow is not promised. You could go meet the maker today, or Christ could return before you die. And if you are found worshiping idols instead of him, you will face the just condemnation that you deserve. But God is merciful. He gave his only son, who never bowed to an idol, never sinned against his father, remained perfectly faithful to him on behalf of those who have sinned against him. And then he died on the cross, taking the punishment that we sinners deserve And it says that whoever believes in him will not perish with our idolatry, but they'll be given eternal life. Today is the day. Today is the day to stop choosing your idols and to choose Jesus Christ by his grace. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we mentioned gratitude. This is what you were saved from. You were completely steeped in idolatry. And there's a great line in Amazing Grace, which we won't sing this week, but perhaps in a coming week here. It says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. It was by grace that you understood your sinfulness and therefore feared before the Almighty God. That's grace. But then it was also by grace that your fears were relieved as you found Jesus Christ, as he woke you up to see him. Well, praise be to God. And therefore, why would we go back to that foolishness? Brothers and sisters in Christ, idols cannot help you. If you, if you cave into one of your idols in sin, it may give you a temporary pleasure and a temporary feeling of satisfaction that is only followed by guilt and shame and emptiness. You are saved from that. Why would you go back to it? Idols can't help you. That's one reason that trusting in idols is foolish. The second reason that trusting idols is foolish is that idols are man-made. They're man-made. Read verses 10 through the beginning of verse 13. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. 
He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line and marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. Okay, so going back to uh, verse 10. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? He's going to answer this question. Who is it that is making these idols? But first it says in verse 11, all his companions, anyone who supports this idol maker and bows down to these idols, they are going to be put to shame. And then he says, and the craftsmen are only human. The one making these gods, making these idols are human. Now, Isaiah is not ignorant here. Uh, He's not suggesting that people were making idols knowing that they weren't worshiping a God. Uh, But he's not speaking from their perspective. He's speaking from reality. Ultimately, these idols that they're crafting are not backed by any God. And that's why it's foolish. The people who are making these gods are man. They're man-made. And he goes on to say in, in verse 11, let them all assemble, let them stand forth, going back to this imagery of, of a courtroom setting. And here's what will happen in this courtroom setting. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together when it is made clear to them that the gods they worship were no gods at all. And the reason that they worshiped them was because they rejected the true God. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And that is not my desire for any of you here today. Trust in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. So now it's talking about a metal type of image. He's taking this cutting tool. He's keeping the coals hot, basically, by moving them around. Because in order to make a metal idol, you got to make the metal malleable. And in order to make it malleable or formable, it needs to be hot. So he's working very hard at keeping that coal hot in order to make this idol. And then he says in verse 12, he fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. There's irony here. He's using all of his strength. He's using his good arm with his hammers in order to fashion this idol. And because of all of this work that he's exerting, verse 12 says, he becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he is faint. He's working so hard at making this idol, it makes him tired, it makes him hungry, and it makes him thirsty. And there's great irony in this when we compare it to what is said about God in chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And and if we could co-opt that verse and apply it, reverse it and apply it to the idol maker, this idol maker is a finite human, the creator of false gods. He does grow faint. He does grow weary. His understanding is foolishness. So we're seeing a comparison here between the people who make idols and God himself. And do we not see the folly of that? Rather than worship the God who created them, they create their own gods. And they put a lot of work into it. Verse 13, the carpenter stretches a line. So now we have a wooden idol that's being pictured. He's measuring it so that the idol is just the right size. And he's marking it with a pencil. He's got his plane and he's, he's meticulously shaping this wooden idol so that it looks right. He marks it with a compass so everything, every shape, every curve is rightly measured. This is again, the hard work that this, that this carpenter does in order to build his false God. He thinks that a God is going to inhabit this idol, but there is no God but God. So all he's doing is building an empty statue. Idols are man-made and therefore idolatry is foolish. Your idols are man-made. Your, 
let, let's take, for example, the American dream, okay? The American dream is to be financially independent, to, to be able to retire as early as you possibly can, and then just enjoy the rest of your life not doing anything, okay? That, that's a big motivator for a lot of Americans in particular, okay? That, that is not God's design. That, that is a, that is a aspiration that has been created by the world, by the influence of Satan in order to distract you, in order that you work too much so that you don't focus on your almighty God, okay? The, the, the dream of not working anymore is anti-God. Who invented work? God. When did he create work? Before the fall. He intends for you to work. He wants you to work. Now, listen, if you become financially independent, that's awesome. Uh, give me some of it, right? Uh, but, but work, still work. And work is unto the Lord and not men, okay? So that is a man-made idol. And, there, and there's many more. That's just one example, okay? And it's foolishness. Why would we follow the designs and the goals of people who do not know God instead of following what he has told us to do? So idols are man-made. That's foolishness. The third reason that idols, trusting in idols is foolish is that idols are made in man's image. Idols are made in man's image. We're just looking at the second part of verse 13. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. So this is great, great irony. So they're making this idol that represents a God and you look at it and it looks like a man. The great majority of the statues that represent these false gods around the world are anthropomorphic. They, they look like people, right? So Thor, I'm sorry, Odin is, is, is an old looking man. He's got like a hat to cover his eye that he had sacrificed to gain wisdom. Um, Thor has got this flowy red hair. He's got a hammer named Mjolnir with him. Shiva uh, is blue, okay, so that's different. And He's got four arms and three eyes, but in the end, he still looks just like a man. He just looks like an interesting looking man, right? So, so all of these gods that are created, because they're made in man's image, end up looking just like people. And it's, it's foolishness. Why, why would they do that? It's because they reject the God who's not like them, who is, as we sang, holy, holy, holy rather than submit to the one God who presents himself as spirit and omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent, they would rather create gods that are like them, that act like them, that think like them, and that ultimately will serve them if, the God, if they do enough things for the God, that the God is, has to do something back for them. Idols are made in man's image. And the idols that we have in this world today, in our hearts, in our culture, they're made in our image. They are exchanging what we know about God and his morality to more better suit what we want. We see this all the time with people rejecting certain laws of God and saying, well, uh, that was just written by men or that was just for that time. Instead of submitting themselves to the God who is, they are trying to turn God into who they are, who's going to be satisfied with all of their sin. Idols are made in man's image. And whenever you sin, you are at least temporarily putting God in the way that you want him to be. You, you are pretending for just a moment, he can't see what you're doing, or he doesn't care about your sin. You're reflecting yourself in him. Idols are made in man's image. That's the third reason that it's foolish. The fourth reason that trusting in idols is foolish is that idols depend on God's creation. They depend on God's creation. Look at verses 14 through 17. He cuts down cedars. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. 
Also, he makes a God and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a God, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Do we not see how foolish this is? The way that he makes his idol is by cutting down a tree that God gave him for his provision. So he takes this cedar and he cuts it down, or maybe he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, but he lets it grow strong, you know? He plants a tree and lets it grow and mature among the trees in the forest. And then also notice the end of verse 14, the rain nourishes it. God provides the rain to grow the tree that the idolater is using to make his idol. It's foolishness and it's wicked. It is wicked. And then it becomes fuel for a man, okay? So he cuts down a tree. Some of it he puts into the fire and he breaks bread. The same, at the same time that the idolater is making an idol, God is providing for him fire. God is providing for him dinner. And then he makes a God and he worships it. He makes it an idol and he falls down before it. Half of it, verse 16 says, he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. So he takes God's provision and he gets all cozied up in his little cabin because of the fire. And he gets all full in his belly because with that fire and with that animal that God provided, he's full. And then verse 17, the rest of it, he makes into a God, his idol. And he falls down to it and he worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. He doesn't shout to Yahweh, thank you for your provision. Deliver me from my sin. He goes to this created statue and says, you are my God. Deliver me. It's utter foolishness. Our idols also depend on God's creation. So for example, let's take for example, sexual sin, okay? Perhaps that is one of your idols today. In order for you to engage in sexual sin, you need to actually depend on God's creation because God created sex. And so what you're doing is taking his good creation and perverting it to your own likeness. You're perverting his gift for your own pleasure. And, and if you are involving others in your sexual sin, God made them too. They too are made in the image of God and you are using them, perverting them for your pleasure. You see how twisted this is, how foolish it is? In order for us to sin, we need to depend on God's creation. In order for us to bow down to our idols, we have to pervert what God has provided for us, okay? So that's foolishness. Um, another example of this might be alcohol. Not sin to drink. It's a sin to get drunk. And in order for you to make alcohol your idol, you have to use the gifts that God has given you to provide that alcohol, okay? So, Idols depend on God's creation, it's foolishness. The fifth reason that trusting in idols is foolish is that idolaters are blind. Idolaters are blind. Look at verses 18 through 20. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burn in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Idolaters are blind. So these people who are making idols, they don't know. Again, they're not, they were not in this time making these idols 
understanding that there really is no God behind the idols. The reason why is because they don't know. They don't discern it. And the reason why they don't know and they don't discern it is because he has shut their eyes. Now, what that referent is, is not clear. It could be talking about God. It could be talking about Satan. And it could be talking about the idol itself. And all three of those can be biblically justified. Romans 11 talks about how God had given people a spirit of stupor and blinded their eyes. Satan is described in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, I believe, as the one who blinds the people in this world. And, and, and Psalms describes the actual idols themselves as blind, and those who follow them become like them. So the idolatry itself can make a person blind. But whatever the case may be, this is the result of their idolatry. When God blinds someone, it is a judicial blindness. It is a punishment for the blinding that they have already chosen. When God hardens someone, they have already hardened themselves in their sin. And so he is just to do so. And he uses second causes in order to do so. But this is their state. Their eyes are shut. They can't see. Their hearts are shut. They cannot understand. There is verse 19. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, well, half of it I burned in the fire and bake bread on its coals and roasted meats and have eaten. Should I go ahead and make an abomination with the other half? No one is thinking that. No one is thinking, shall I fall down before a block of wood? That's not what idolaters do. But here's what happens. He feeds on ashes. This is a great metaphor. We have our luncheon today. Imagine if somebody brought a large bowl of ashes. What are you going to do? You're going to grab a scoop of that? Right? You're going to say, I'm not taking any of that. That's, that doesn't provide me any nutritional value. That doesn't do anything for me. And that's what people who make idols do. They feed on ashes. They don't benefit in any way. It's only to their harm. It's only to their condemnation. And it says in verse 20 that a deluded heart has led him astray. His heart is, is deluded. It's confused and it's pulled him away from God. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He's not thinking, isn't this idol that I just made a complete lie? It's because of his deluded heart. Idolaters are blind. They don't know. They don't see their idolatry. And the reason why it's foolish for us is why would we go back to that? Why would we go, try to go back to a state where we don't know and cannot discern? Why would we listen to the delusions of our heart, the impacts of our flesh on our inner being? It's foolish, brothers and sisters. We cannot be satisfied with the idolatry of our hearts. We got to kill it. We got to put it to death. So those are five reasons why trusting in idols is foolish. And now, five reasons why trusting in God is wise. The first one is this. God made you. God made you. Look at verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. So God tells them about the foolishness of idolatry and he tells them to remember it. Why does he want them to remember it? Because they were so prone to it. There are some scholars out there today, some skeptical scholars who will try to prove that Israel was polytheistic, meaning that they worshiped multiple gods. And Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets will be like, I could have told you that. Okay? Yes, they were polytheistic at many times. They were bowing down to false gods of the other nations. That doesn't mean the other gods were real. It doesn't mean that the Bible affirms that they're real. It's just a reality. They struggled with polytheism and idolatry. And so God tells them, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. Why? That beautiful phrase again, for you are my servant. I formed you. 
You are my servant, not the servants of these false gods. You are my servant, O Israel, and you will not be forgotten by me. He made them, he chose them, and he wanted them to remember about the foolishness of idolatry. Brothers and sisters, remember these things, O church, for you are God's servant now. You are in Christ who is his ultimate servant. He formed you. And he didn't just make you as a human being. He did that, yes. But he made you again into a new creation. He gave you a new heart. He gave you a regenerated spirit and a new life. He formed you. And you will not be forgotten by him. There's irony here, right? The idolaters were worshiping that which they made. God is the one who made us. Who are we going to worship? Are we going to worship the idols that we've made? Or are we going to worship the one who made us? That's the first reason that trusting in God is wise. God made you. The second is that God redeemed you. He redeemed you. Look at verses 22 through 23. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it, for Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. He blotted out their transgressions like a cloud. We talked about the way that he blotted out his transgressions in a, in a recent sermon, right? But the way that he had blotted out their sins is like making a cloud go away or, or mist just dissipating. That's what their sins were like now, like a dissipated cloud or a dissipated mist. They were gone. And in light of that, he calls them, return to me. Was not God's kindness designed that they would turn to him? Return to me for I have redeemed you. And then he calls all creation to worship. Sing, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. He is calling all of creation into exuberant, praise of him because of what he's done. And again, remember, brothers and sisters, right now, creation is groaning. But when he returns and he completes redemption, all of creation will rejoice. But he's speaking about this in a way that, that it's, it's as good as done. This was written, remember, 150 years before they were actually removed from exile. But he's speaking of it in the past tense, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel because when God decrees something, it's as good as done. Romans 8, 28 says that those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're a Christian, your future glorification is as good as done. Okay? So he's redeemed you, brothers and sisters. He has blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. He has taken your sins and he's blotted them out like mist. And it, it cost a lot for that to happen. He gave his only son to make this happen for you. Jesus died on the cross so that your sins would be blotted out, that your sins would be blotted out. And he says to you today, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Who is struggling with some sin today that you have had a difficult time letting go of? God says to you, in my son, I have forgiven you. I have redeemed you. Return to me. Return to me. And praise him for it. Sing. Shout. Break forth into singing. Because the Lord has redeemed you. And will be glorified in you. God has redeemed you. That's a second reason why trusting God is wise. The third one is God made everything. God made everything. Look at verse 24. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, 
who formed you from the womb, I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by myself. So here is the message again of Yahweh, their God, directly to them. He's their redeemer. He reminds them of that. He formed them from the womb. He reminds them of that. And then he says, I am Yahweh, who made all things. Again, look at the comparison. The idolaters are the ones making their gods. But the true God is the one who made all things. Which would you rather follow? Would you rather follow the created thing or the creator himself? He made it all. It says that he alone stretched out the heavens. So we have a a metaphor of putting up a tent. And if we looked up at the sky as our tent and we look at the beauty of the blue sky in the day and at night, the several stars, because we're in the city, that we can see at night and look at, behold the glory of God's creation, that's all him. And anything we can see through a telescope or through astronomy as our understanding of the universe becomes more and more vast. The estimation of the hundreds of billions of known galaxies, God did all that. He stretched it out. And then he made everything on earth as well. He says, who spread out the earth by myself. So if the skies are the tent, what's ever covering the ground for protection or insulation, that's the earth. And God has spread out the earth by himself. Everything that we observe in this vast earth, every beautiful flower, every massive canyon, everything was spread out by God himself. He creates, he created, and continues to create all things, everything. So again, who are you going to trust in? Are you going to trust in what man has created? Are you going to trust in God who created all things? Why would we choose the lesser when the greater is available to us through Jesus Christ? So that's the third reason why trusting in God is wise. The fourth is that God proves liars wrong. He proves liars wrong. Read verse 25. Who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. He frustrates the signs of liars. Think, for example, of uh, the magicians in Pharaoh's court in, before the Exodus, right? The staff is put down, Aaron's staff is put down and turned into a snake. The magicians say, well, we can do that too. And their magicians, I'm sorry, their staffs supposedly turn into snakes and Aaron's staff eats all of them, right? So God frustrates the signs of liars. Or consider uh, the prophets of Baal crying out, Baal, save us, please rain fire on this, prove yourself. Baal can't hear them because he's not real. And then God answers Elijah because he is real. He, He frustrates the signs of liars. He makes fools of diviners. Think about the prophet Balaam who was paid to curse Israel. But because God is almighty, he could do nothing but bless Israel. He makes fools of diviners. He turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. So 1 Corinthians describes how Paul just goes into Corinth, which values wisdom, values rhetoric and oratory. And all he does in Corinth is preach a simple gospel of Christ and him crucified, which was foolishness to the world. You're saying that your Messiah was crucified and yet people believed. All sorts of Corinthians believed and it just showed that the foolishness of God is greater than all of the wisdom of men. There is really no foolishness of God, but it's that phrase is used in a hyperbolic way to show that if there were foolishness of God, The bottom of his wisdom is still higher than the heights of man's wisdom. This is what is going to be revealed. He proves liars wrong. And who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to God who proves liars wrong? Or are you going to listen to the ones who have been lied to? I'll give you an example of this. Psychology. 
I don't question the well-meaning intentions of Christian psychologists, but in the final analysis, psychology and the Bible are at odds with each other. And the reason why is because psychology is built on the faulty foundation that there is no God. That every issue that man has is either uh, something that has happened to them or something that is, that is merely a problem that's happening to them. When the Bible tells us you are a sinner in need of restoration, okay? Anything, here, here's, the, here's the issue, okay? These are, made, these are man-made ideas. Now, yes, sometimes psychology gets some stuff right. Don't get me wrong, okay? A, a broken clock is right twice a day, okay? But again, it, the root is the issue. The root is that there is no God. And therefore, it's just, that's just who you are and you just gotta deal with it, okay? So it's made in man's image and it's seen in this way. In the DSM-4, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of, of Mental Disorders, gender identity disorder is a disorder. So if you're a man who thinks you're a woman, in the DSM-4, that was a mental disorder. But then it became vogue. So in the DSM-5 in 2013, it's no longer a disorder. You see, they are taking these observations of humanity and they are crafting it into their own image. They are trying to see man based on what they want it to be. And the result of that is that you have people who are propping up your idols and telling you that's just who you, that's just what you got, that's just who you are. There's no changing it. And by the way, just be proud of yourself. There's no need to change. Listen, anything that's in the DSM right now has no biological reason. If they ever find biological reasons for things, they take it out of the DSM because it has a medical diagnosis now, okay? So anything that's in the DSM right now, as far as we know, is not an issue of the body, it's an issue of the soul. And what the world wants you to think is, don't go to God for that problem, get meds. You, you, can't, you can't fix you by going to God. You need to find worldly result, results for your issues. But the issues of the soul can only be resolved by God through prayer, through transformation by the renewal of your mind, okay? Now, don't, don't hear that, that these are real difficult issues. There are certain things that, that might be plaguing you that no one else here in this room understands. But you have to start from the ground saying, God can help me with this. God can make me normal. Listen, nothing in the DSM-5 is normal. Jesus is normal. We're trying to stop being abnormal and become like him. And if you're a Christian, God is doing that in you. How did I get there? Oh, God proves liars wrong. And in every lie that we have been told, God is going to frustrate. He's going to fix. Run to him instead of running to the world's solutions. And the fifth reason why trusting in idols is foolish and trusting in God is wise, I should say, is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Look at verses 26 to 28. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Okay? So while he frustrates the signs of liars, he confirms the word of his servant, probably talking about prophets, and in this case, Isaiah in particular. God is going to confirm what the prophet has spoken. He fulfills the counselor of his messengers. And, and the message in this case in particular is, he says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. People are going to live in Jerusalem again. Because remember, Jerusalem is all but emptied right now, for the most part. Because when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, they took the best and brightest of Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon. And so the prophecy is, Jerusalem shall be built. And then he says, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And did we not 
in history actually see this. I'm sorry, uh, I've jumped down to verse 28, verse 26. The cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. And we actually see this happen in history because 150 years after this prophecy is spoken, God brings people out of Babylon back to Jerusalem so that Jerusalem is inhabited. And then the books of Ezra and Nehemiah show us how once again, the ruins of Judah were built again. And then in verse 27, he says, who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. So this could be again, metaphorical language of pointing back to the Exodus about how God can part the seas at will. But this actually also finds a pretty neat fulfillment in history as well, because as part of King Cyrus of Persia's strategy to invade Babylon, he actually diverts the Euphrates River away into a canal, making the water level of the Euphrates low enough so that they can basically just go under the wall and the water gates into Babylon. Pretty cool. This is God who does this. Maybe it was Cyrus's idea, but it was God's sovereignty. It was God's enabling for this. And then in verse 28, he says, who says of Cyrus, and this is very notable, okay? God specifically names Cyrus a hundred years before Cyrus is born. A hundred years before he's born. And a matter of fact, this is so unique that people have to assume this was written after he was born. They have to assume that because otherwise they would have to affirm that God's prophecy is real. The issue with this is that there is absolutely no evidence, no real evidence that the second part of Isaiah was written later than the first part of Isaiah. The oldest scroll that we have of Isaiah dated to I think 150 BC is just one Isaiah. That's a sign, okay? So <laughs> just hit number two on that, uh, on that black remote control, okay? So the oldest known scrolls of Isaiah we have, they're always one. You don't have like the first part of Isaiah in a scroll, the second part of Isaiah in a scroll, or any kind of change in handwriting or breaks or anything like that. There's only one writing of Isaiah. And also Josephus, the historian, notes that Cyrus was so impressed by this prophecy that he actually tried to fulfill it. That's part of how God may have worked all of it out. And then thirdly, this is really the only reason you need Jesus and the apostles quote the second part of Isaiah and quote it as if Isaiah is the one who said it, So if it's good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for you, all right? So he names Cyrus, which is incredible. And it is rare. This isn't done very often in the scriptures, but it's not the only time it's done. In 1 Kings, Josiah is named and Josiah isn't king until 300 years later. And this is completely consistent with Isaiah's themes that God is the beginning and the end. Whenever he says something, it happens. Down to the fact that the one who would deliver them from Babylon would be named Cyrus. And he says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Kings were equated with shepherds, but the kings of Israel and Judah had failed. So God would use instead the king of the Medo-Persian empire, King Cyrus. He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So God would use his King Cyrus of Persia, the Medo-Persian empire to conquer the Babylonian empire. And then he decrees that everyone be allowed to go back to their homeland. And he decrees that Jerusalem and the temple be rebuilt. And he even provides the, the, the materials for it to happen. Is it not true of Cyrus that he is God's shepherd and fulfilled his purpose? He keeps his promises, brothers and sisters in Christ. Has he not confirmed the words of his servants that pointed to Jesus Christ? And has Christ not perfectly fulfilled those prophecies? Has he not also promised for us a new Jerusalem? Did he not build a place for us to be with him forever? And greater than Cyrus, Jesus Christ is the shepherd. He is the good shepherd 
who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the, 1 Peter 5, 1, the chief shepherd. And it says that he shall fulfill all his purpose. And in an even greater way, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the purpose of his father. And in him, we are being built into a house. Him being the cornerstone and all of us being built together into a new temple. God is the one who keeps his promises. So it's wise for you to listen to him. Don't listen to your own heart. Your heart is new, don't get me wrong. You've been given a new heart, but your heart is still influenced by the flesh. And the flesh is still influenced by this world. And this world is still influenced by Satan. So don't listen to the world around you. Listen, younger people, your obsession, if this applies to you, to look like the world, to be accepted by the world, to be liked by the world, is foolish idolatry. Don't let the world tell you what's beautiful. Listen to what God says is beautiful. Conform yourself not into the image of sinners. Conform yourself to the image of the sinless one. He keeps his promises and therefore we have good confidence that he is a trustworthy and faithful God and everything that he has told us to do and expect is true. So don't turn to idols, brothers and sisters. Trust in God. Let's summarize this. Five reasons why trusting in idols is foolish. Idols can't help you. Be reminded that you're tempted to sin and when you're tempted to sin, remind yourself, this isn't actually gonna be satisfying to me. It's only gonna make me feel a distance between me and the God whom I love. Idols are man-made. They are not created by God, they are created by man. Why would we go to them? They're made in man's image when we're trying to be conformed to God's image. They depend on God's creation when instead we should honor God's creation. And idolaters are blind. Why would we wanna go back to that blindness? And then five reasons why trusting God is wise. God made you. God recreated you and being the one who made you knows what's best for you. He redeemed you. He bought you with the blood of his own son. Go to him. God made everything. And being the creator, he knows how everything is supposed to work. So don't listen to the way that the world says the world works. Listen to what God says about that. And God proves liars wrong. Compare everything that you hear to the word of God. Because in that he'll prove liars wrong. And when he returns, they'll finally be proved wrong forever. And God keeps his promises. He is faithful. He is true. And everything that he says is good. Trust in him. Friends, trusting in idols is foolish. Let's stop doing that. Trusting in God is wise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.